Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks. This is a Reconstructionist radio production with lrnteach.com. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks, 2010, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan Conkey. Chapter 5. Common Law Wives and Concubines We live in an age when Christian institutions are the target of social reformers who are intent on nothing less than the total liberation of the individual and society from the oppressive practices of the church and the unreasonable requirements of the Christian faith. Doubtless this is the prelude to a new golden age in the eyes of these social saviours and their cohorts. Perhaps it will even come up to the standard of the golden age of Greek civilization, tempered by a lavish dose of feminism, of course, though one wonders if it has ever occurred to these latter-day visionaries that hardly any of the golden ages of the past, or even present, civilizations outside the influence of the Christian faith would have tolerated anything like feminism. Such a liberal notion would never have been allowed to find expression. That it has been allowed to find expression in Western society is due, in great measure, to the kind of civilization that Christianity has created in the West. It is well known, at least well known to church historians, obviously less well known to modern feminist ideologues, that the Christian faith has always been favourable to the plight and rights of women. Greek women of the first century AD found in Christianity a consideration as equals and co-workers with men, though not an equality of vocation that they could not have dreamed of as part and parcel of their former pagan way of life. This was a practical liberation of women from the tyranny of ancient non-Christian civilization that we can hardly comprehend today. So thoroughly conditioned are we by the blessings and privileges that living in a post-Christian society has conferred upon us. Unfortunately, such blessings are taken for granted today and it is common for social evils and sometimes things that are indeed not social evils, even social blessings, but which are reputed social evils by modern thinkers to be blamed on the church or the Christian faith and the limitation of men's and women's potential that Christianity has, supposedly perpetrated through social pressure and stigmatization. Thus, for example, modern man's discontent with the lifestyle that unemployment or disability creates is not infrequently blamed on the Protestant work ethic. Of course, ancient Greece knew no such social problems of unemployment or disability as we have today. Slaves seldom have the privilege of being unemployed, and a disabled child would probably not have lived to an age at which he could have contemplated his plight. Nor is such a child likely to fare any better in the new golden age of secular humanism that looms before us. Exposure at birth was the simple method of dealing with this problem in the golden age of Greek culture. Amniocentesis has relieved the modern, post-Christian world of even this unpleasantness, and the problem of disability can now be dealt with quickly and clinically 
obviating the necessity of even giving birth. 1. The Assault on Christian Marriage Marriage, too, of course, has had to bear its share of the blame for the modern condition, whatever it happens to be. The Christian institution of marriage and family life has had to bear the full weight of humanism's frontal attack on the Christian religion. Marriage is now thought to be outdated, an oppressive relationship unsuited to nurturing the brave new world that the progressive thinkers of our day are intent on creating. Though, rather inconsistently, white weddings and all the trappings that go with them are as popular as ever. No expense is spared on the lavish arrangements that are thought essential to a proper church wedding. It is just that for many people in modern Western society, the ceremony means virtually nothing, and divorce is now almost as popular as marriage. This is a strange phenomenon. The cost of a wedding today seems to be inversely proportionate to the value that is attached to the institution of marriage, though the cost of children's birthday parties is hot on the heels of the kind of expense lavished on a wedding in some cultures. But of course, the meaning is irrelevant. It's the style that matters. This is just one more element in our increasingly superficial culture, which stresses the outward appearance, the image and mere style as the all-important component of modern life, and rejects the content and meaning, the real purpose of human relationships and indeed of human existence. It is not surprising, therefore, that we now hear of pressure groups and think tanks that are working for the complete abolition of marriage as it has hitherto been conceived, that is, Christian marriage and its replacement with 10-year renewable or cancellable marriage contracts and the like. For some, though, even this kind of commitment is too much. Living together without any kind of marriage contract is now the preferred option of many couples. It is not uncommon, however, for this state to be referred to as common-law marriage, and the woman deemed to be the man's common-law wife. Furthermore, in the eyes of some, it is thought that a man can have a legal wife and a common-law wife at the same time. And it is not entirely unknown in this country, though it is certainly uncommon for a man to maintain a relationship with two such women at the same time, the one his legally married wife and the other his reputed common-law wife. The notion, however, is completely false. Not only is the relationship with the woman who has not gone through any marriage ceremony adulterous and sinful, if it were indeed a common-law marriage, it would be bigamous, since English law does not recognise marriage to more than one spouse at the same time as legitimate. Whether that marriage is considered a common-law marriage or a civil or ecclesiastical marriage, It is impossible in the eyes of the law to have two wives. One marriage must be illegal and adulterous. The only question that the law addresses is which one is legal, that is, the valid marriage. Of course, in cases where the term common law wife or common law marriage is used today, there has been no ceremony of marriage of any kind at all. As already stated, For a married man or woman to go through a marriage ceremony of any kind with a third party would be bigamous in the eyes of the law. 
and this has always been the case under English common law. But mere cohabitation, no matter for how long, does not constitute common law marriage. Even when the two cohabiting parties are not married to anyone else, and, moreover, it never did. This estate of mere cohabitation is one of concubinage, not marriage, and English law does not, and never did, recognise it as anything more than concubinage. But concubinage is not a pleasant term, and it conveys a nuance of disappropriation, at least in a Christian or post-Christian culture. The term common-law wife sounds much more acceptable and brings with it the supposed advantages of being dissolvable at will by either party. The whole notion is, however, completely false. A man who lives with a woman in a relationship of physical union without marrying her has a concubine, and neither common law nor canon law recognise, or even have recognised in the past, anything in such a relationship but the fact of mere concubinage. 2. A Brief History of Marriage in England The English law of marriage has a long and complicated history. As early as the time of Glanville, mid-12th century, it was recognised that matters of matrimony were exclusively within the jurisdiction of the ecclesiastical courts. The English law of marriage was thus the canon law of the church as practised in England. When a question pertaining to the validity of a marriage came before a common law court, it was referred to a bishop to be settled by canon law. Common law marriage, therefore, that is, marriage recognised as such by the common law, was marriage that was recognised by the ecclesiastical courts. In short, common law marriage was, by definition, a Christian marriage. A Christian institution. The medieval ecclesiastical courts punished concubinage as fornication and gave those involved the option of marrying or separating. It was the view of the early canonists including Gratian, 1090-1150, that where there was no physical union, the marriage was not valid. But this opinion did not prevail. According to Pollock and Maitland, its demise was due to the influence of Peter Lombard, and the fact that, if there were no indissoluble bond created by the ceremony itself, that is, if physical union was essential to marriage, Joseph and Mary could not have been married at the time of Christ's birth. The canon law of marriage thus stated that consensus non concubitus facet matrimonium agreement, not copulation, makes marriage. Before the Reformation in Europe and before Lord Hardwick's Act in England, 1753, marriage was either informal or formal, the latter being conducted at the door of the church, in faciae ecclesiae, literally in the face of the church. Marriage was entered into by the consent of the parties to the marriage. In an informal or non-ecclesiastical marriage, all that was required was a simple agreement of the parties in words of the present tense. Sponsalia per verba de presente. For example, quote, I receive you as my wife, stroke husband, etc. End quote. Or a promise to marry in words of the future tense. Sponsalia per verba de futuro, which created a contract that was considered consummated either by words in the present tense 
or by the act of physical union. Before consummation, however, this amounted to an engagement and the relationship could be dissolved by mutual consent. Where there was no physical union, therefore, the validity of the marriage depended on the form of words used in the ceremony. If the words were said in the present tense, the marriage was made. If in the future tense, the marriage was not complete and could be dissolved. Such informal marriages were irregular and the church disapproved of them, but the words created an indissoluble bond of marriage. Any subsequent marriage by one of the spouses to a third party, even if celebrated formally at the door of the church, was made null and void by the previous marriage, quote, constituted by a mere exchange of consenting words, end quote. Either party, however, could compel the other to solemnise their marriage in facie ecclesiae, and the church could compel them by means of spiritual censures to do the same. Formal marriages were essentially the same as informal marriages, except that they were celebrated at the door of the church, in facie ecclesiae, received the priest's blessing, and were followed by a nuptial mass inside the church. Although this gave a degree of certainty to the marriage, in that it was a formal ceremony blessed by the church and witnessed by the community, the church did not marry the couple, but merely solemnised the marriage. As with informal marriages, quote, the parties were not married by the priest's blessing or the other ceremonies. They married each other, end quote. The problem with marriages not conducted in facia ecclesiae, formerly at the door of the church, was that they might be difficult to prove. It was possible to marry in complete secrecy without witnesses by the simple exchange of words in the present tense. Such marriages were valid marriages that created an indissoluble bond, but nevertheless unprovable. Canon law required at least two witnesses for the proof of any matter, and in this, the general biblical requirement, quote, At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established, end quote. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Compare Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, John chapter 18, verse 17, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse, verse 1. Thus, as Pollock and Maitland point out, quote, if A and B contracted an absolutely secret marriage, and this they could do by the exchange of a few words, that marriage was, for practical purposes, dissoluble at will. If, while B was living, A went through the form of contracting a public marriage with C, this second marriage was treated as valid, and neither A nor B, nor both together, could prove the validity of their clandestine union. An unfortunate result of this was that the ecclesiastical court would have to admonish A and C to live together in a state of continuous adultery. Since this was immoral, however, the first marriage between A and B being valid but not provable, theologians were forced to concede that A and B should, for conscience sake, live together as man and wife, thereby disobeying the church and suffering excommunication as a result secure in the knowledge that they would be absolved on the day of judgment. For obvious reasons, therefore, both the secular and ecclesial authorities were keen to put an end to these informal, unsolemnized marriages. In 1200, a council at Lambeth, in a council at Lambeth, 
Archbishop Hubert Walter promulgated a constitution requiring all marriages to be celebrated in faciae ecclesiae in the presence of a priest and only after the publication of the bans of marriage on three successive occasions prior to the ceremony. Those not married in the regular way after publication of bans were not to be admitted into a church without licence from a bishop. In 1215 at the Lateran Council, Pope Innocent III made this rule effective over the whole of Christendom. Regular marriages, that is, marriages celebrated at church, according to this constitution, had, from then on, certain legal advantages over informal, unsolemnized marriages. For example, only when a marriage was celebrated at the door of the church could the bride be endowed, but the wife's personal property became vested in the husband and her real property was vested in her husband during coverture, that is, while she was married to her husband and thus under his protection. Nevertheless, informal, unsolemnized marriages did not cease. The mere decree of the church did not bring the custom to an end. And rather than declare such irregular marriages null and void, the churches continued to accept them. Such marriages were deemed sinful in the eyes of the church, but they were still accepted as marriages and invalidated any subsequent marriage in Fasia Ecclesiae by one of the spouses to a third party. As Pollock and Maitland put it, quote, On the one hand stands the bare consent, perverba presente, unhallowed and unconsummated. On the other, a solemn and a consummated union. The formless interchange of words prevails over the combined force of, of ecclesiastical ceremony and sexual intercourse, end quote. This situation continued in England until Lord Hardwick's Act of 1753. Registration of marriages began in the 16th century, but the registers were not universal, and they were not always well preserved. The Council of Trent outlawed informal marriages and required the presence of a priest for the celebration of a marriage to be recognised as valid. But England, a Protestant nation, was unaffected by this. Informal, or clandestine marriages, as they were called, continued to be made. In 1598, even Chief Justice Coke, who was the Attorney General at the time, married his second wife in a private ceremony, for which, for which he was censured by the Archbishop. In 1694, marrying without bans or a licence was made a criminal offence, but such marriages were still considered valid. Clandestine marriages, again, did not cease. Indeed, from the mid-17th century onwards, they had become more popular. The main reason for the 1694 legislation, in any case, was not to end clandestine marriages so much as to facilitate the taxation of matrimony. Other attempts were made to end informal clandestine marriages during this period, but it was not until Lord Hardwick, Chief Justice, introduced a bill to end the practice in 1753 that the situation changed. This act abolished clandestine marriages altogether. Henceforth, a valid marriage in the eyes of the law required either the publishing of bans or the purchase of a licence, for which parental consent was required in the case of those under 21 years of age. The presence of two witnesses and the recording of the marriage in a public register, falsification of which became a capital offence. Jews and Quakers were, were exempted from getting married in church, but not nonconformists and Roman Catholics. The royal family was also exempt from the provision of the Act 
as were marriages celebrated with the specific license of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Act covered only England and Wales. Regarding marriages entered into outside England and Wales, English law recognised the law of the place in which the marriage was celebrated. This accounts for the popularity of Gretna Green amongst eloping couples. As the nearest place in which one could get married outside the provisions of the Act for the majority of people resident in England, it became the most frequently used venue for eloping couples under 21 years of age. The Marriage Act, 1836, introduced a civil ceremony which could be celebrated in a registry office or a registered building, for example, a nonconformist chapel. 3. The Common Law Doctrine of Marriage To the extent that the terms common law marriage and common law wife referred to an informal marriage unsolemnized by the Church, the notion these terms represented was abolished completely in 1753 by Lord Hardwick's Act. In this sense, therefore, there is no such thing as a common law marriage anymore in England and Wales. The term is incorrectly used to denote a relationship based on mere cohabitation and physical union. Such a relationship is concubinage, nothing more. And English law, common or ecclesiastical, never recognised it as anything more than concubinage. In another sense, the only real meaning of the term common law marriage or common law wife is a marriage or wife that is recognised as such in common law. To the extent that the term has any validity today, therefore, it refers to all valid marriages, whether ecclesiastical, Church of England marriages, or civil marriages, for example, marriages in a registry office or in a nonconformist chapel. And in England and Wales, it refers only to such marriages, since the term can only mean a valid marriage in English common law. As we have already seen, common law prior to the 1836 Marriage Act recognised marriage as the domain of the ecclesiastical courts and accepted as a valid marriage what the ecclesiastical courts accepted as a valid marriage. The English law of marriage was the canon law of marriage. The common law did not have a doctrine of marriage peculiarly its own. It certainly did not have a doctrine of marriage different from that of canon law. It merely deferred questions relating to the validity of marriage to the ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Common law marriage, therefore, however it might be conceived, was always a Christian institution and a state judged to be valid in the eyes of the Church and therefore accepted as such in common law. To the extent that the term represents the informal marriages of the medieval period, it was still a Christian institution, that is, an institution validated by the Christian Church, though canon law did not require the presence of a priest or solemnization by the Church for a marriage to be valid. Despite its continual efforts to secure these as the regular form of marriage and the extirpation of clandestine marriage. In short, the common law doctrine of marriage was the Church's doctrine of marriage. Whatever else common law marriage was, therefore, it was not merely an agreement to cohabit, a state that in no way affected a union of any kind in the eyes of the law. There had to be words of marriage in the present tense or in the future tense that had been consummated by words in the present tense or by physical union. Without these essential words of marriage, 
That is, without the couple marrying each other, there was no marriage and the common law did not accept their cohabitation as marriage in any sense. Of course, modern concubines, of which there are very many in our society, do not like the term that most accurately defines the relationship to the man they live with. The word comes from the Latin concubinatus, meaning, quote, union of a man with an unmarried woman, usually of a lower social grade than himself, end quote. The truth is unpleasant to modern liberated women, so the term, quote, partner, unquote, or some such circumlocution is used to describe the sexual relationship they have entered into. In the light of all the talk that we get from feminists about the liberation of women from the oppression of Christian marriage, it seems odd that they should be so content with having reached that most exalted of all female conditions, concubinage. Consequences of the Abandonment of Christian Marriage The increase in concubinage and divorce and the demise of marriage as a lifelong institution has had serious consequences for modern Western society. These deleterious social trends, combined with the heavy taxation policies of modern governments and, not insignificantly, the loss of faith and belief in the Christian worldview, which for a millennium provided the religious foundations of Western culture, have proved fatal to the health of the Christian institution of marriage and family life, and indeed fatal to the health of our society in general. The result has been the creation of a dysfunctional generation that has hardly any concept of the Christian social order upon which the nation drew for its strength and vitality in the past. The decline of the family as one of the pillars of society has also contributed to the growing homelessness among the young, and state handouts and welfare are not the answer to this problem. The state is no substitute for the family. Without a strong Christian family ethic, society lacks a stable and secure environment in which to nurture the next generation, and thereby an essential means of preserving social order. Since individual freedom has largely been suspended by the envious state, and the church has already been dismantled from within as a pillar of society, only the state remains as a major prop of the social order in modern Western nations. Virtually all other institutions have now been subordinated to the state. The result has been tyranny. Without a strong church, a strong family and individual liberty, there is no means of checking the absolutist ambitions of the modern state. Neither church nor family have any real power or authority in society any longer, and the all-powerful, predestinating state now controls and governs the life of the individual and the nation. 5. The Christian Social Order The time is surely ripe for reversing this trend. Part of the answer is the restoration of the church to her rightful position and role in society. Part of the answer also, and a very significant part, is the restoration of the Christian institutions of marriage and the family in the life of the nation. Of course, this can only happen as the Christian faith is embraced and the Christian virtues practice in the lives of the individuals and family that constitute the nation. There is a change that must begin in the heart, but it must not stop there. Pietism cannot solve the problems that afflict our nation. 
if the change of heart affected by regeneration is not demonstrated in a man's outward life, we must seriously question whether there has been a change of heart in the first place, since Christ taught us that it is by the fruit they bear that we shall know who are his, not by a mere confession of faith. Only the Christian faith can save our society from its present plight, but it can only do that as individuals, families, churches and politicians work out the faith in all the spheres of life and culture proper to each. A healthy society, that is, a Christian society, requires not only a strong church, but a strong family ethic, a strong ministry of public justice, the state, and individual liberty. These are the four pillars upon which a Christian social theory and practice rests. All four are essential to a healthy society, and they are equally essential. A church-centred society is not the Christian ideal, neither is a libertarian society or a patriarchal society, certainly not a totalitarian society. The Christian ideal requires all four principles, a strong church, a strong family, a strong magistrate, and by strong, I mean a just magistrate also, and individual liberty, all operating within the parameters and boundaries and observing the proper limitations of authority set down for these institutions in God's word. These are the ideals upon which Christian society is founded. The demise of one of these institutions means, ultimately, the end of a Christian social order. All of these vital institutions must be restored in society if we are to save the nation from ruin and judgment. One must not be stressed to the exclusion of the others, and none may take precedence over the others. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.